This morning, however, you can turn to Mark 1 and we can uh, begin our or continue our series on the road with Jesus. We are looking at the first 11 verses of chapter 1. Last week we did uh, just chapter 1, verse 1, which was a prologue uh, to this series on the road with Jesus. And, And it's an acknowledgment of us coming together in different places in life and, and, and traveling, journeying together with Jesus, the Son of God. I, I said it last week. It's not that you're on the road with Jesus and I'm in my car next to you on the road with Jesus and, and one, the, the person next to you is on the road in their car next to Jesus. Is that we are together very intimately, very uncomfortably together on this road with Jesus. We are very close. And and what's happening is is that we are growing, hopefully, in our knowledge and love of Christ together, and we are growing in our love and humility towards each other. And this vehicle that we are in, if you continue to study at home, is less like the big old sanctified greyhound I said last week. And it's more like a roller coaster. Let me explain. Uh, If you have not been to Universal Studios Islands of Adventure in Orlando, then you should. Uh, Universal has pound for pound the better rides than Disney. I'll die on that hill. Okay? Universal is what I say for big children like me. And Disney is for my children. Uh, when it comes to the rides, not the experience. Nobody does an experience like Disney, but we're talking about rides. You know what I'm saying? Thank you, sister. But at Islands of Adventure, there is a roller coaster that is not the greatest roller coaster ever made, but it is my favorite roller coaster. It's called the Incredible Hulk. Now, the traditional roller coaster, if you've been on a roller coaster before, let me explain to you the trauma that it brings. The traditional roller coaster you get on You sit down, you kind of leave the loading area, and thus begin your traumatic climb to the climax of the ride at the very beginning. You get on, and it's a slow tick. Tick, 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 until you're way higher than your own comfort is, and then the ride begins. But that's not how it is with the Hulk. With the Hulk, you leave the loading area, and you're in the tunnel, and it's standstill. It's, it's no movement. The ride hasn't begun yet, right? It's just still. And then what happens is, is instead of a slow, tra- trauma-inducing climb to the climax, what happens is, is you get shot out near 70 miles an hour. That is Mark's gospel. Mark doesn't begin with this slow climb like Matthew does with a list of genealogies of Jesus and his family tree of a bunch of names you don't even remember because you're reformed and you only read the New Testament and not the Old Testament. But he begins immediately in it. He just shoots you 
right out. And it moves very quickly in and out of thoughts like corkscrews and backflips. The gospel, according to Mark, is written by John Mark, a co-laborer with Peter the Apostle, and is himself a forerunner of sorts because he was the first to write this new literary genre called a gospel, a, a book of good news. But why would he need to write good news. Well, picture this. We're going to do a lot of imagination today, okay? Picture this for one second. Rome is on fire, like literal fire, not like imaginary fire. Rome is literally on fire. It, it burned for nine days. Two-thirds of Rome was completely destroyed. The emperor Nero was under attack because the people rightfully, the people blamed him for a, re- a poor response effort for such a great calamity. And Nero, as all poor leaders in history do, shifted the blame from himself to another. Nero blamed the Christian church, which had thus initiated the first great persecution of Roman Christians. Nero would execute them by torturous means, one of which is he would throw them in the Colosseum or the amphitheater and he would dress them in animal skins and he would unleash wild beasts to attack them because the animals thought that they were prey. For very public for all to see. It was disgusting. These Christians, they had their rights taken away. They were on the constant run. They were not able to worship freely in public, resulting to worshiping in the underground cemeteries under the city. These people gathered in the catacombs underneath the city, surrounded by dead bodies, and praised God that their souls were alive. This was their reality. Heavy, faced with evil. Mark is writing To them, a people steeped in Old Testament knowledge, though faith flickering, they are longing for their hopes to be a reality every day getting worse than the day before. And Mark delivers to them a letter of good news, a letter about Jesus Christ. He begins very quickly with verse one. If you missed last week, you can watch the video on Vimeo or you can listen to the sermon on the podcast service of your choice. But he begins verse one with the emphatic declaration of the deity of Christ. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, son of God. Mark is using language that is understood by them, contextualized for them to receive. He says, you read about what the prophets of old declared. They declared a coming Messiah. This is him. This is Jesus the Christ. The Savior has come. But family, don't miss this. This is good news for you too. Jesus is here. And he brought with him the forgiveness of our sins, the invitation to go back home, the guarantee of our keeping. The the groom has come for the bride. Jesus, the Messiah, has come, and he has come for you. Mark wants them and us to see more than anything what he wrote in chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark is saying, Jesus 
came. The Messiah you're waiting for has come. And he didn't come to be served. He came to serve you. And he gave his life for you and I. And Mark continues making his case to prove this by showing us his forerunner. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, son of God, begins with a man called John. This morning's sermon is titled The Servant's Herald because servants don't have heralds. There is no servant that ever existed that has someone paving the way for them. No, that is only for a king. And servants don't have someone who comes before them declaring the good news of another servant to come. That's not how this works. Oh, but it does in Jesus's case, says Mark. Jesus is for sure the king, but he's a different kind of king. He's a servant also. And this servant, Jesus, he has a herald. And that herald has a message about the greater servant. And then we will see how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything for the hearers. There lies our three areas of focus. So let's read God's word, pray, and see what he has for us. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This is God's word. Let's pray. Oh, God, your word is perfect. And you say that it is perfect. It corrects us. It teaches us. It encourages us. God, let that be true this morning. May we be edified by your word. And sanctified by your Holy Spirit. Would you gift me with clarity of speech and thought? And would you give the listeners wisdom and grace for my errors? And knowledge of your word. In Christ Jesus' name, amen, amen. I have to tell you this morning, there's a lot of teaching. <laughs> there's a lot to unpack. As I said, Mark does a lot of uh, moving very quickly, as you say, or as you saw. 
Immediately after proclaiming Jesus' divinity, Mark moves to prove his point that Jesus is the Son of God, a coming King, God Almighty, by reminding us and the original readers of the words of the prophets. Verses 2 and 3 are an interpretation of a blending of three different Old Testament prophecies. Exodus 23.20, Malachi 3.1, and Isaiah 40, verse 3. Mark is making the case for us, presenting us the evidence of the prophet's words that before the Christ would come, before the Messiah, the Savior of man would come, someone else would come before him. A forerunner. Someone who would be proclaiming the coming of the Lord, a, a herald. To help put it in perspective, we'll read Isaiah 40, verse 3. It says, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Would you imagine again the Israelites of old, wondering when freedom would come? Wondering when the tyranny of the current reign would end and the promise of a new king who would bring deliverance, who would bring acceptance and safety into his kingdom would come. In a comforting word to the Israelites in captivity, exiled from their home, Isaiah declares on behalf of God, there is a voice. This is great news. Have you ever family petitioned Something to God in a moment of great need, in a moment of despair, and heard nothing back. You begin to wonder ever slightly, has God forgotten me? Is this what he has for me? Where is the Lord in this? And then suddenly there's movement. All of a sudden, things begin to clear up and things begin to happen, whether it's the mending of relationships, whether it's healing, whether it's some sort of breakthrough, opportunity, not all at once, contextual to your petition, I'm sure. Most times, though, it's not the intervention you need, it's repentance, but we'll get to that. But there is God in the midst of your circumstance. Look to the Israelites. Wondering if the Lord was forsaking them to exile forever. Wondering if this Messiah would ever come to them. Wondering if deliverance would ever be had. And Isaiah says there is a voice. Someone is coming to prepare the way of the Lord. Someone is coming to prepare the way for a new king, to bring a new era to this place and to his people. Family, the themes of comfort and deliverance and God's glory aren't just for Isaiah's time. They are for you. That king is Jesus. He is your comfort as you await return for him to bring you home. He is your deliverance from the bondage of sin and the sting of death. And he does it all to the glory of the Father, encouraging you by the power of the Holy Spirit to live unto the glory of God. Also, Jesus was that king for them and Jesus is that king for you. Tim Keller in his book, Jesus the King, Meditations on the Gospel According to Mark, says this about verses 2 and 3. He says, Mark raises the stakes all the way and makes the ultimate claim. He asserts that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the voice calling out in the desert. 
What Mark is doing is Mark is equating John the Baptist to the one who is preparing the way for the Lord. Which means that then they can equate Jesus as that new coming Messiah, as that new king. Mark is explaining the prophecies here. He's explaining, he says, I, who is God, will send a messenger, who is John, ahead of you, Jesus, who will prepare your, Jesus's way. And this is an important highlight in Mark's writing, declaring John the Baptist as the forerunner to Jesus. But if you only knew how crazy this was in the moment, John was not the model celebrity, nor was he the model prophet. I mean, this dude, he wasn't handsome. Uh, He wasn't dressed in silks. He wasn't gracious in his step. He didn't have a swag or bravado to him. He, He was awkward, rough, rugged, weird. A lot of people thought him to be crazy. And Mark is telling him, Messiah's forerunner right there. And the Israelites would come to see him, and they asked him a question that's important for us to spend some time together. They said, are you Elijah? Are you Elijah? Why would they ask this question? Elijah was taken away hundreds and hundreds of years before that. And he, I mean, he never died. He was taken up on a whirlwind to heaven. The man went straight there. I mean, that's a way to go. Don't die. Just go. God said, I'll come get you. But why would they think that John the Baptist is Elijah? If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Malachi 4. Malachi 4, starting in verse 5, says this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children And the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This was the last word spoken to the Israelites. That's it. The last page of the Old Testament closes with a promise that would ring in the ears of God's people for three centuries concerning Elijah's return. Then in 300 years of silence, then in walks this dude, hair a mess, beard longer than long, dipping jumbo-sized grasshoppers in honey and eating it, wearing camel skins and a leather belt, which is really a man thong. I mean, this is not normal behavior or look for somebody. And he's baptizing people. He's baptizing people in the water and calling it a baptism of forgiveness. People were marveled. They were stunned. Partly because they thought God was done with prophets. It's been 300 years we had no prophet. All of a sudden, this guy shows up. And partly because if they could pick a prophet, it wouldn't look like John. 300 years, not a Thus says the Lord, not any kind of ministry on behalf of God. And then this guy comes and says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They don't know what to do with him. They question him. They call the guards on him. The Pharisees come to check him. Rulers and kings knew his name. This is truly a God thing that is happening in the wilderness. 
If you read the other Gospels and line the accounts together, you'll see that people were coming from all over to hear John preach. All over to hear him preach, to be baptized by him. He was pulling the crowds. The Jews wanted to know, is this Elijah returned? Even today, there is a Jewish custom as Jewish people gather for the celebration of the Passover. They leave an empty chair at the table. If you were a guest in their home during this time, you would think that they invited someone else and that person didn't show. You would ask them, hey, were you expecting other company than me? And they would say, no, that chair is for Elijah. Because still till this day, they are waiting for the prophecy of Malachi to be fulfilled. They are still waiting for Elijah. When the people of the time, the hearer of John's sermons would ask him, are you Elijah? John said, no. So then they asked, are you the Messiah in fear of missing Elijah? And John said, no. But see, John wasn't Elijah reincarnated. Scriptures say that John's father was told by the angels John would have the spirit of Elijah in him. And take time this week to read 1 Kings And you'll see for yourself that John lived like Elijah. John dressed like Elijah. John preached like Elijah. I wish I had more time to get into this. But here's the thing, family. They missed the point. John is, as Kent Hughes puts it, the effective witness. Or as Spurgeon says, the true messenger. John's life was in total devotion to his task. From his clothes to his meals, he was focused on doing one thing and one thing only. Proclaim the kingdom of Christ was at hand. John's clothes were a protest against the godlessness and materialism of that era. He dressed as someone who was set apart, uncomfortable with what others around him found comfortable in serving themselves. I know that will preach to someone this morning. He lived and did his ministry in the wilderness. This was intentional because the historic meeting place, the historic meeting place of God to his people was always in the wilderness. Always. Don't miss this for you. God appeared to Moses as a burning bush. In the wilderness, the Israelites, after escaping Egypt, were given provision and laws and commands and words from God in the wilderness. Elijah was sent to live out into the wilderness where the Lord spoke to him and met him there. And now John the Baptist is in the wilderness. Family, you may feel far from God this morning. Your life today is probably not what it was a year ago. Your life today is probably not how you planned it. You may feel far from everything, but I tell you, God is near to you. Notice, John, people were coming to John in the wilderness, leaving their homes, leaving the populace, leaving civilization to come to the desert to hear this strange man preach, not a gospel of prosperity, but a message of repentance. Family, sometimes you got to notice that God got you in the wilderness because some repentance needs to be had of you. 
For Jews to come to that place, the wilderness where Israel, their ancestors, were once exiled, was to acknowledge their own disobedience and rebellion that got them there to begin with. And then through the preaching of John's word, had a desire to begin again. To start afresh. Family, God doesn't leave you in the wilderness alone. The Jews were there for 40 years, not because God forsaken them, but because they used the moment of the wilderness as opportunity for rebellion. That is to say, their hearts were hardened by what they sowed themselves. God took the Israelites to John in the wilderness to a place that shown them physically their own sin and heard the gospel preached and repented and believed. Church, if you're in the wilderness this morning, God may need you there, not for some self-help remedies, not so that what you can have is more bad influences, because what you need in the wilderness is the gospel, and for some of you, the gospel again. The Jews went to the wilderness to hear about Repentance. Let me get back to John's examination. John could only do this job, be the promised herald, because he saw the Lord not as equal to himself, but for himself. John believed that Christ was for him. John embodied the message that he preached. His life and actions proved who he was. He continually lived a life of perpetual repentance and devotion to God. He was bold yet full of humility. Though crowds drew to him, he never drew attention to himself. He was truly, truly a nobody telling everybody about somebody. He truly lived solely Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. Family, keep in your minds a total devotion to the Lord in all that you do. In every moment of your life, think, ponder to yourself, is this bringing glory to me or glory to God? This is how John the Baptist lived. Total devotion to the Lord in all that he does. And he preached a message that paired with his life. What was that message exactly? Well, Mark 1, verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Mark shows us the content of John's ministry. He preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John calls the people of God to repent. Here's a couple observations. Number one, this was incredibly unique, even for the time. Nobody was calling the Israelites to be baptized. Nobody ever. The closest thing we have to this is Gentiles who converted to Judaism were baptized so that they would have a washing from their defilement in the past. That's the closest thing we got. John is not asking only Gentiles to be baptized. He's asking the Jews also. That's bold. That's not customary. But although John's message is grounded in the ancient religion, this is a new thing. This is a bridge that takes place 
in between two places. It's the moving from hoping in a kingdom far away and celebrating that at last the kingdom is at hand. Second observation, John would preach before baptizing. He would sit everyone down by the river and he would preach to them about their sin. Hundreds and then thousands of people sat near the Jordan River as John was warning them of judgment, speaking to specific individual sins. He was naming names. He was calling for social justice and repentance to be had. And then the people would form endless lines to be baptized by him. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ is preaching about sin. You don't see grace clearly until you see your sin clearly. Sin is the great evil of our age. It is the destroyer, the blinder, the liar, the manipulator. Sin will eat at you and eat at you. It is a cancer. Sin is to choose self over God. It is to choose your way instead of God's way. But see, where sin is great and trust, it is great. God's grace is greater. You could still be sleeping this morning. God's grace is greater than your sin, I said. And what John is doing is calling for radical repentance. To introduce the act of submersion as a means of portraying repentance is just unusual for the time. And this was in stark contrast to other Jewish groups. What they were doing, what they were preaching, was that they taught that repentance was found in law-keeping ability. Stricter performance of following the rules. As if obedience will equal penitence. If you have children, you know this is a lie. John's ministry is so different to the religious landscape. His sermons echo the prophets. Get away from your self-centered ways and cling to a dependence on God totally and wholly. Then to display, to confirm, to declare publicly this work, undergo a baptism of repentance or a baptism of returning to God. This ministry was essential to the coming of Jesus and to his inauguration of his own ministry. John knew this and made sure to be, the, and made sure to be clear that the people knew this also. He preached This was only an external washing. You still need an internal one. You ever washed your car on the outside but left the inside filthy? Boy, in public on the street, you think you're killing it. Just got that fresh wax. You was like, if only you came in here and saw the ketchup and makeup stains. I'm not speaking from experience. I'm just saying. John is saying, this is an external wash, but someone is coming after me to wash you in the spirit. That was the internal washing. Salvation coming to us is a washing of the spirit. You cannot choose Christ apart from the spirit. You cannot be saved apart from the spirit. You need the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. To make you over. To give you life. 
where sin demands death. The Spirit brings eternal life. John's ministry, his message was wholly the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not just that grace is covering over your sin, but repentance needs to be had also. Confessing your sin. If you believe that you are forgiven of your sin, but don't confess or repent them, how do you know you're forgiven? Think about that. It is not enough to say, God, forgive me of my sin. No. John's message was, or John's message was not, you got sin, but when I dunk you and you come out of this water, you ain't got no more sin. That's not what it was. They were to confess with their mouths their sin. When John preached, he named the sins that were in the crowd at the time. He knew And then, as an act, as a portrayal of repentance, received baptism for it. As our verses continue, so does the entrance of our king. Mm. Verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. Just as John was the fulfillment of the prophecies of a herald to come. Jesus is the the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Messiah. They are both satisfactions to great needs. But what happens when Jesus meets John? He receives the baptism of repentance. Isn't that odd to you? Isn't that odd? Jesus never sinned. What does he need the baptism of repentance for? Matthew gives us some insight into the meeting of these cousins. Matthew chapter 3, verse 14. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Now John's baptism was of repentance. It was a cleanse of sins, a fresh start. Jesus needs no fresh start. And yet he's taking John's baptism. And he's doing it to fulfill all righteousness not of his own behalf, of ours. In taking John's baptism, Jesus associated himself with sinners and placed himself among the guilty, not for his own salvation family, but for ours. Imagine again, you're in the crowds. Imagine yourself outside the city in the wilderness among the thousands in attendance. You are seeing the great baptizer in the river, the one who is talking, the one who everyone is talking about. You hear him preach. You understand your sinfulness. You are unable to keep the law God has given you to keep. You need to be cleansed. You you are getting it. You need to be forgiven. 
You need to turn away from your sin and walk in righteousness. You need the baptism that John is preaching to you. But you also hear John say that someone else is coming after him. Someone who even he, John, is unworthy to loosen the strap of his sandal. This great Messiah is coming and he'll baptize you again in the spirit. And so what you do is you get up and you get in line. You get in line, everyone's shoveling or shoving and moving around trying to get there first. You ever been that? You ever been waiting in line? You ever been wait, like waiting for something to happen and they open the doors finally? Theme parks do it all the time. They put you in a gigantic room to wait to go into a ride. And as soon as they open the doors, everybody's like, yo. That's what's happening here. So picture yourself in that. You get in line and you wait. But then John stops his baptism of Jimmy the stranger. And is at a standstill. He's at a standstill because someone else didn't wait in line, but walked right up to the front. And his very presence captivates the thousands, including yourself. Everyone is silent. You felt this before, too. The murmurs of conversation happening in a room, and then someone walks through the door and everyone shuts up. This is different. This is holier than that. This someone walking to the river, walking towards John, he's, he's different. You feel it. Silence in the air. Everyone's quiet, just watching this man who skipped the line. And then you hear John proclaim loudly with fear and joy, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And you think to yourself, is this him? Is this the one who would come after John? And this man gets in the water and he looks at John. Poor Jimmy the stranger didn't finish his baptism. He's standing off to the side now. And this man tells John, baptize me. And John says, I can't do that. This is a baptism of repentance. I just declared that you are holy and perfect. I can't baptize you. You should be baptizing me. Jesus says, trust me, I got this. Do it. Just do it. It has to be done for all righteousness. And John says, yes. Family, Jesus' ministry on earth was substitutionary. Jesus is not just a great king. He is the good king. And he came into our world not to live unto himself. He came into this world not to live as any human would have lived, as he pleased. He came to live as a servant for his children, for his people, for his sheep. Jesus' work on earth was a refresh, a restart, a do-over, not for him, but for man. Jesus came to live a perfect life 
for you and for me. He came to fulfill the law for you and for me. He came to keep the law for you and for me because we are unable. Family, if Jesus is going to take your sin, he's going to take your baptism of repentance too. To fulfill all righteousness means that Jesus had to keep the law. He had to take the pilgrimages to Jerusalem three times a year. He had to sing the songs of ascent, which were songs about him. To the praise and glory of himself. Jesus obeyed the law because you can't. Jesus fulfilled all that God required of his people so that he can be a perfect sacrifice. Not just a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice. It's not enough for Jesus just to go directly to the cross. He had to go to the cross perfect. He was the perfect substitute for us praise God that we have a king who didn't look at his own book of rules and say I guess I'll do it to prove it no we have a king who said let me come down and do what they cannot so that they can enter my gates you can't come in with sin Even the smallest white lie is enough to be indictable. Your sin renders you to be charged with an eternal punishment. And Jesus came down from heaven and said, I'll live it out for them. And I'll take the sin for them. That is your king. It wasn't enough for Jesus to die on the cross. That's not the whole story. He had to live for you too. He didn't just die for you. He had to live for you and live in such a way that all righteousness may be fulfilled. And then what happened? Jesus is submerged. And as he comes out of the water, a beautiful Trinitarian display of the total Godhead is revealed, signifying the inauguration of his ministry. The heavens tore open, the sky cracked, and the Holy Spirit descended from heaven and into him. And then God the Father declares for everyone present to hear, this is my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Christ's sonship was acknowledged before everyone. He is truly the son of God. Family, I'll leave you with this. Jesus received the Spirit so that you could. Jesus was empowered by the Spirit so that you could be. Jesus was baptized into repentance so that we could have access to repentance. And the words, this is my son who I am well pleased, now reside over you and over me. Well, great news for the Israelites. What great news for the Roman Christians and what great news for us today that Christ came and he came for you and for me. Everyone who was there, everyone who was there ran and told everybody that they could come. Can you imagine thousands of people leaving a very specific place and rushing back into the city to knock on doors, to yell down the streets, we found him. Family, 
you know, you know Jesus has found you when you go try to find others for him. You know that the Lord has really got you when you are so convinced that the Great Commission is your mission. I think of my children when they play hide and seek. You got to watch out for my youngest. When he gets found, he likes to tell the person finding the people where everyone else is. It's terrible. But I hope he grows into that. Not the cheating, but finding the lost ones. Here at Cross Point, we say we exist to point Brevard County to Jesus Christ. Why? Because Christ found us. Because Christ found us, he rolled up on us like the Israelites of that time. They were waiting in line for something else, and Jesus showed up. Like my kids playing hide and seek, we were in the darkness, but not in the closet, in sin. Jesus meets us there. And I tell you today, friend, that you are wandering the desert. You are hidden in the darkness of your sin and your circumstance Jesus has found you there this morning. He has rolled up on you and is inviting you to take his life for yours. To take his life. And so I tell you, take his life this morning.